This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest today is Donald Reed, the author of Opening the Gates, The Leap Affair, 1968-1981, and the book was published by Verso Books in 2018. Hi there, Don. Hi. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I look forward to it. Could you get us started by telling us a little bit more about yourself and what got you interested in working on France originally? To be honest, I think I, I got interested in France in part because I knew French and I didn't know another foreign language. <laughs> I might if I knew Russian. I was taking Russian in college, but I never achieved a sufficient fluency to study. So that's part of the reason. Mm-hmm. And the first time I went to France was the summer of 1973. Oh, wow. Um, sometimes referred to as the, the leap summer, the time that the... Um, the affair that we're going to talk about today uh, began. And I, w- I went to work on my undergraduate thesis, which was actually about uh, skilled worker socialism, as I say, skilled workers who felt that they could and should run their own enterprises. So I was very interested in LEAP. I didn't go to the business, so I didn't go visit that summer, but I've had an interest in it ever since my first exposure to France and uh, for both uh, you know, historical, intellectual reasons and, and political reasons as well. I was interested in the politics of people seeking to take control of their lives and their futures. It's always been something that's interested me. I didn't come to write about it till till now, or maybe started a little more than 10 years ago, but working on LEAP. But um, it's always been something that's an event that's interested me and um, has has meant a lot to me in that way. That's really fascinating. Did you feel like that was a presence for you as you were working on the project, your own recollection of that time and that period? Well, I remember being fascinated by it. One, one, way that I, one thing I remember was coming up with this thought that I probably never lost, which is France is like the United States in 90% of ways. And then there's 10% that are different, and the 10% that's different is what fascinates me. And I remember thinking this when thinking and talking to people about the events at Leap in the summer of 1973, thinking this is an element of the 10% difference in France that really interests me. I couldn't really imagine, you know, workers taking the watches and making their own watches and selling them and paying themselves and getting really widespread national support from both the left and important elements of the right. Mm-hmm. So it just struck me as it was part of that 10% difference. I've had, the reason I raised the question is because some of no, no, we're 20% different. <laughs> you are cutting us short here. Don't say we're not. We're 10% different. <laughs> I've never had that specific conversation, but I think I know what you're talking about. So, Don, before we go any further, can you give us the sort of short, encapsulated version of what we're talking about when we talk about Leap? Sure. So, Leap was a watch factory in Besançon in France, uh, not far from the Swiss border. And it was the most important one for um, during the post-war period, and pre- before World War II as well, for a period there. But it was an important firm. It was the best-known watch brand in France. It was often known as the first communion watch. It was not a terribly expensive watch, but it was also not an inexpensive watch, and it was one that was seen as something one would give on important occasions. It ran into financial difficulties in the late 1960s and early 1970s, and it was uh, bought in part by a, a Swiss conglomerate who had the idea that what they wanted to do was keep the Leap brand name because it was an important brand name in France, but simply make it an assembly plant rather than a place where all the watch parts had been made that had components that handled uh, mechanics, armaments, et cetera. They wanted to 
greatly reduced the, the uh, size of the workforce and what was done at the Leap factory. And when the workers found this out, uh, basically they had a meeting with the uh, syndics, the people who were dealing with Leap and its financial difficulties, mm -hmm. and they took their briefcase and they opened it up and there were all the papers that the syndics claimed didn't exist. The syndics said, well, well, we have no idea what's going on. We have no idea what they opened up their briefcase and found the papers with the handwriting of the syndics in it. And this began a, a series of events in which the, the workers, they let this, they let these people go, but they said, well, we need another hostage. And so they took the 30,000 watches, which were completed and ready to be sent out to sellers and held them and mm -hmm. hid them. And then they said, and furthermore, there are watch parts here, and we could make watches, and we could sell them, and we could pay ourselves until there's a resolution of our conflict. And so here they were. They weren't, you know, doing something violent because they were basically nonviolent, but they were doing something that they felt was just, that they, it was right. just that they be able to keep their firm operating. So that's, that's the summer of 1973. Between 1974 and 1976, a group of capitalists who were you know, quite successful capitalists, but ones who felt that what they had learned from 68 was that there would be a need for owners to be able to work cooperatively with unions, basically acquire funding and set up uh, an operating firm, which operates for about two years. It is caught in the recession of the late 1970s, changes in the watch uh, industry, and it closes down then. And then finally, after that, the workers reoccupy the factory. They still believe that there's a future there, that they still believe a future that, you know, and that all workers should could still should and could still be employed there. Uh, in 1977, they establish a cooperative. They have to eventually make an arrangement with the government, and they leave the occupied factory in 1981. And uh, mm -hmm. a series of small cooperatives uh, continue for a number of years in in business. But the, the, you know, my interest is really this period what I call the 1968 years, basically from 1968 to 1981, which in the United States would be the election of, of Reagan in Britain. It's shortly after the um, Margaret Thatcher comes to power. And, and in mm -hmm. France, it's Francois Mitterrand, who is a socialist, but he is a socialist who will uh, not create socialism in the way that uh, 68ers thought should be done, but will uh, basically introduce new forms of, of uh, market mechanisms into France. So right. this, that's why the concluding year is, for me is 1981. Well, I want to follow up a little bit on these bookends of the project uh, that make a lot of sense in terms of changes in French history and in terms of this episode and affair in particular. But I want to just ask you to say a little bit more, Don, about this idea of the long 1968 and how this book focused on the Leap Affair fits in, as far as you're concerned, to debates or scholarly discussion of the meaning of 68. Um, I'm thinking here of work by scholars like Christian Ross and others. How would you situate the book in relationship to how we think about 68 and what does thinking about Leap change in terms of our understanding of 68 and its legacies. I mean, I, I would say that I'd like to put my work in this, in the world of Kristen Ross's, but, but which I think Kristen Ross though is uh, she's challenged a lot of the orthodoxies of, of 1968. Mm -hmm. You know, much of the work of 1968 um, has focused on intellectuals and on intellectual developments, uh, whether it be the development of new philosophers in the mid 1970s who reject state socialism and Marxism and see that as a legacy of, you know, that they're breaking with that uh, element of 1968. And by making Leap a central focus of these 1968 years, I am, I'm looking at workers and basically, you know, the 1968, May 1968 is largely remembered as, you know, an affair of students and an affair of intellectuals, but mm -hmm. certainly at the time and for People at the time, it was this massive general strike, the largest general strike that France had ever known, and that you know workers were a central element of what we think of as the 1968 years. So by focusing on Leap as a way of bringing, focusing our attention on that element of the 68 years. There's been a growing interest for various reasons, Don, in the 1970s. And I wonder what you think of this project and 
in general, what you think about the idea of the 70s as a kind of discrete moment or to understand it as a decade. If you're thinking in terms of the long, I'm trying to think of how you said it just a few moments ago, the era of 68, is there some kind of integrity or special quality to this decade of the 70s as far as you're concerned? Well, I think that this there are two elements, at least in my uh, interpretation of the 1970s. You know, it's the end of an, what in France would be the, the 30 glorious years after World War II mm-hmm. of economic development and growth. And those end in the mid-1970s. I think the 1968 uh, experience, in particular the sense that we live in a world of relative prosperity and growth, and it is our duty to think about how we can best use that. Uh, It's a responsibility that the 30 glorious years of expansion gave to people who, especially the young, I suppose, the young who lived in the late 1960s and early 1970s. So there's that element of 1968, 1968 thought that you see go well into the the 1970s. And then in the mid-1970s, the recession that has a number of causes, you know, uh, increased fuel costs, costs, et cetera, but that that confronts this idea that the that there was um, the social and economic conditions existed for liberation to one where the social and economic conditions were uh, repressive. So the 1970s is a fascinating decade in part because I don't I don't see it as a whole in that sense. I see it as two worlds in confrontation with one another and that leap is very much that world i mean the the summer of 1973 the sort of sense that these workers are creating their own lives creating their own worlds demanding that they have a say about what their futures are and by the end of the 1970s they were struggling small cooperative subject to government all sorts of government mandates and controls etc i mean that change is very much is two elements of the 1970s I'm really fascinated, Don, by the kind of interplay between Leap as this very specific context with its own history uh, as a business, as a factory, as a collection of workers in a particular part of France, and then, you know, moving from the local to the national context to global, either watching Leap or, you know, changes that are feeding into it. Could you say a little bit about how you think about, thought about as you were working on this project and kind of negotiated that, well, I don't know if tension is the right word, between the very local conditions that make LEAP as specific and unique a site as it is, and that broader context, how representative is it? How unique is it? I think that in terms of broader developments um, of the time, I mean, one is you know, a form of globalization and the creation of a, a Europe. And though Switzerland always, you know, stood outside many of the, what we call kind of creation of, of Europe, what happens at Leap is when this Swiss watch firm con- conglomerate wants to take over Leap and to fit it into its own project so that Leap lost the sense that it that it's lived within a national context. Secondly, I would say that from the time that this watch firm that was established by these uh, these capitalists in the mid-1970s um, fails, that it's subject to government policies which are increasingly moving towards what we would call in a broad sense neoliberalism associated with mm-hmm. Giscard. From a Gaullist perspective, in a, a certain kind of a left Gaullist perspective would be, it's, you know, the state has a responsibility to, to nurturing the nation and the nurturing, you know, defending elements of the nation and looking to develop, et cetera. These were all ways that you know, those who wanted to maintain industry at, at leap favored. But the neoliberal view or the Giscardian view uh, would be that no, the market has to have its ways and that that's what should be done. And we, and that there's a constant effort in the late 1970s for the state to withdraw support from from leap in fact to make sure that it's not a success for fear that in a period of recession that all sorts of other firms that are going under their workers will say well if leap can do it why can't we mm-hmm. so you need to make sure that it doesn't become a mo- and you asked earlier use the word model and i was hesitating there but i will say that government officials certainly saw the model uh, as but as a problem right. and they wanted to make sure that if it was a model it was a model of of, of what was impossible you make a point Early on, I think it's in the introduction, and it runs throughout 
the book, Don, that there's something significant about the characterization of what transpired at Leap in terms of struggle or lutte versus a strike, which in some sense, some very basic sense, it's not a strike. (laughs) Could you say a little bit about the significance of that distinction between understanding this as a strike and thinking about this in terms of struggle? Yeah, I sort of started with this by realizing that the workers of LEAP themselves and also their supporters talked about it as a loot, as a struggle all mm-hmm. the time. And, you know, as you're saying, as you're pointing out, you know, we think of a strike as the withholding of labor. And by withholding labor, you are going to get the owners to possibly make concessions. Mm-hmm. But here, since the deal was the owners wanted to, if not shut down LEAP, reduce its productive capacity greatly, lay off workers, that withholding your labor would, if anything, contribute to the success of what you're seeking to oppose. So there was a reason they, they didn't speak of themselves as a, as a strike. But I think that loot is a word, and if you look at, I, I did something which um, I hadn't done before, but it's, uh, you know, kind of did a kind of Google word search in French documents, et cetera, of the period, and you can see that the word mm-hmm. loot greatly increases in use in this period, the late 1960s, 1970s, and then, you know, declines. But it's, I would say it's a characteristic of this 1960, what I'm calling the 1968 years, that looking for a word that would talk about forms of opposition and resistance of all sorts. And it's not, you know, there's always been loot to class. There's always been class struggle. Right. This is a, a different kind of use of, of loot. And it's, um, you know, it's very much, if you look at all sorts of movements in the 1970s, they use, they use the word loot to basically try to say we're looking for a unifying concept here. And it's not strike. It is opposition to to illegitimate authority. You also draw attention to the significance of leap as uh, something that you know takes on these huge mythological dimensions at the time and um, since. And there's this great moment in the introduction. Uh, I love this quote where you say, "Like Madame Bovary, I think you're following up on something Sartre said. Like Madame Bovary." Leap is a text that created a world from the world that created it, confronted the legality of its day, and continues to inspire and haunt our imaginations. So what is it that made this episode so special and gave it such force uh, in terms of the, the mythological status that it acquired at the time and in, in terms of the longer term? One one part of my answer would be kind of a sociological one, that for a generation of people, and if you talk to French men and women who, you know, not who were workers, not who were, you know, in business uh, themselves, they remember this, they had feelings, they knew about it, they followed it. Mm-hmm. You know, it has a little bit, I mean, this is a terrible parallel to make, but it's occurred to me before. It's like the Woodstock of a politically conscious, you know, kind of a nation. They remember this. It meant mm-hmm. something to them. This is their generation. And, you know, they remembered it in a certain way. It's not the way necessarily that the workers themselves remember it or that historians tell the story, but it was an event that marked a generation. Um, but I think that it's continued to interest and fascinate people uh, because it's a, it's this instance of workers or one might say the people using their own imagination and creativity to come up with solutions. Because there are all sorts of elements besides simply producing the watches on their own and selling them. Although those were the selling in particular often had all sorts of elements that one workers had never entered into before. Mm-hmm. The workers not only did this producing of work of watches and selling them, but they also worked with their national confederation with economists, and their national confederation to come up with their own business, what we would call a business plan. Mm-hmm. The index was a consulting group that went and worked with them. And they, they were, they had all these documents that they'd stolen from once they occupied the factory, then they, they went through all the documents that had were in the main offices and they figured out how, you know, what changes they would need to do to make themselves profitable. And, so there's that element to it as well, that it's basically saying we live in a world where it's not simply the you know, workers are the manual workers who do these, these particular physical, these particular mechanical. And then there are decision makers, you know, managers, administrators who have the 
training, the intelligence, the information or whatever to make the decisions about the fate of those people who are working. That the people who are manual laborers, they too can participate and should participate and should have an important say in their future. So I think these are things that continue to resonate within political communities today. But, you know, I think at some point in the in the book, I drag out uh, Claude Lévi-Strauss and he has, you know, they're good. It's good to think with LEAP. You can think about problems that may seem different from the particular ones that the LEAP workers confronted, but it still allows you to think about them. It gives you an opening. So you have mentioned a couple of times now, Don, that you were in France in 1973 and that this set of events has sort of been there for you uh, and have been an area of interest for you. Why this book now um, or the last 10 years? Yeah, you know, my, my interest was in part piqued by, there was a, a uh, documentary film, Don and Leap, which was released in 2007. Mm. And, you know, it reminded me of how interested I was. It's a very good uh, documentary. Over the years, so I'm a pack rat of a scholar. I mean, I'd saved things. I had come up with thoughts, ideas where some where leap would come up in other contexts, and mm-hmm. so I, I had a little my box of my my leap box. But I, um, <laughs> but I think, I, but I certainly the film you know encouraged me to really mm-hmm. start thinking seriously about the events events there. And would you say, Don, that there's like, is there a leap scholarship? I mean, reading this book, I found myself wondering like. Given its mythological status, why is it taking this amount of time for the kind of rich and detailed study that's outlined here? And what else is out there? I don't, I'm not an expert in this area. What else is out there? And how did you see yourself as intervening in a scholarship or a literature in English or French or other languages? Well, as far as scholarship, I mean, to the best scholarship was in master's theses and uh, portions of doctoral theses where people would talk about some aspect or other. I mean, it was just mm-hmm. as opposed to published works. But that was, you know, helpful um, for me. And I'm not sure that there's a good reason why not. Although, the, you know, partially, there's, a, I think the French have always had a certain amount of, they haven't run as eagerly to really immediate topics, you know, things that happened very recently than mm. uh, of Anglo-American scholars. And actually this, you know, in this particular year, like 2018, 2019, there are actually three books relating to Leap Mine and two others which which came out. So it, it is for some reason a Leap moment. I mean, one of them was, it's a memoir of the director of the firm between 74 and 76 that he He'd written at the time, and I'd read the the version he'd written right after he um, this firm closed. Then he worked with a, a very good young sociologist to basically write his account of events, you know, between seventy four and seventy six, with an introduction and a concluding chapter. And then a, a German student wrote his dissertation. So it's his dissertation um, that was finished, um, you know, in this this period, and and is, has been published as a now that talks about this. Uh, period as well. Mm. You know, most most works look solely at this period of 1973 to potentially 1976, including the film. I mean, these are the right. the years when, when Leap was uh, most prominent. And I wanted to look at, devote a significant portion of my book to the period from 76 to 81 to mm. think about what these workers did in, the, in those years and how they responded. And I think that the formative work in my scholarly existence, I think, was Jacques Rancière's La Nuit des Proletaires, not the night of the I can't remember what it's mm-hmm. called in English, but you know, it's a book about intellectuals and workers and how they change one another. And uh, you see that in the earlier periods of Leap, but you will see it particularly clearly in these last years, this last you know five or six years of uh, of of Leap. And I wanted to to look at that as well. I wanted to think about how these how these things developed. You bring up. Concierge makes me think about something that I was thinking about as as I was reading and that you draw attention to. I guess it's a question about theory. When I think about Leap, I think about the places where I've read about it in relationship to political and theoretical writings about autogestion, self-management, about participatory democracy. Could you say a little bit about well, how how Leap has played a role in 
the elaboration of those types of theories and ideas around those concepts, but also how much of a role those concepts did or didn't play. Yeah, so autogestion, which is you know, in English, you know, we say self-management, but that's probably not maybe the best translation. Mm. So self-gover- self-governance, um, you know, in, Brit- in Britain, you would say workers' control. Uh, was you know, an important ideology, especially among the CFDT, among the in the trade union that that was I referred to earlier as the one that deconfessionalized that had come out of the Catholic trade union, and it was you know a way of separating themselves from either the kind of capitalism of the United States and of American trade unions who integrated themselves into that, or state socialist version as you defined in the Soviet Union or most Eastern European states and. Mm-hmm. And for the French, you know, circa 1968, it became, you know, an ideology of liberation that people that ultimately people need to take control and do it not simply individually, but collectively of their lives. But there was something that Frank Georgie, who is the leading scholar of, auto, of autogestion in France, as well as the important scholar of the CFDT of the, the, uh, this, this uh, confederation, he he made a point that I think is very true, that one of the reasons that LEAP was so uh, important to people on the left was that it gave them a material manifestation of self-governance, of autogestion in France. Mm. Autogestion was no longer simply something that happened kind of in a one way or other in Yugoslavia or one way or another on farms in Algeria. The workers of LEAP never referred to their conflict as one of autogestion. They referred to autogestion de, de lutte, you know, mm-hmm. self-governance of the struggle. I mean, they were not running a business in the way that we would say that a cooperative, you know, they, maybe a cooperative where the employees are seen as making decisions about their business. Or they were basically, they took the watch parts and they took the completed watches and they built a world around them. They did. It was very much one of participatory democracy. They made the decisions, how, okay, we need to do you know, the most important one was, um, you know, publicity about the popularization, you know, doing publicity about the strike, getting building support for the strike. But everything else, they had committees that dealt with that made decisions that would present their decisions to the General Assembly. And if they were disapproved, they went back and figured out another way to, to, to handle issues. But to the extent we talk about autogestion in, Al- in Algeria or, or Yugoslavia, it's, it's different. It's really much more this kind of autogestion of the struggle itself. Right. So I guess the point is, it's not like they, they certainly didn't set out and say, we want to try out autogestion, let's <laughs> do it here. I mean, they basically, they said they had a very kind of participatory ideology, like the only way movements are successful is if people feel that they're part of it and they feel a commitment and they feel responsibilities. And you know, these are also elements very much of a successful self-managed project. Mm-hmm. So there are characteristics, but it was not, some uh, you know, effort to see if, if autogestion works. But as I'm saying, much of its support came from those who thought, thought that way, who looked right. at it from a distance and said, this is it. You know, the, we're, we're prefiguring the world, the world to come that we, we care about. And that's why we have to devote ourselves to supporting LEAP. I wanted to ask you, Don, about the sources that you bring to this project, including the interviews that you conducted with former participants and observers of, of the affair. Well, I do use interviews. I did interviews. And then also I've, I've been able to use interviews done by other people at other times mm-hmm. for other purposes, which are very helpful. And, you know, with interviewing, uh, I would say to tell students who are, you know, the best thing to do in the interview is to know a lot before you go, because otherwise mm-hmm. people will tell you, not that they're trying to hide something, they just have a certain, especially because I was most interested in not solely the leaders, but people who were uh, were activists, were part of the core, the noyau, the core of the, the movement. And, you know, they've talked about this in one way or another with people for decades. And so they kind of develop a way of telling a story. So it's important to be able to not, not, to ask them other things. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. And in terms of the paper trail, 
uh, of this story? Where and how did you access the written record? Yeah, well, there's there are the you know, state police archives, and you know you get needed to get various kinds of you know permissions to to look at them because of the the time when they existed or mm-hmm. what, what they're seen to contain within them. But uh, in addition. There was a lot of material produced about the movement at the time. Now it was produced with certain for certain reasons, uh, and so it has to be read with those with those like any archive with any documentation with those things in mind. Mm-hmm. And then Cahiers de May, which was a a leftist group, but a leftist group that sought. They really their goal was to create communication between these various you know groups like Leap and other social movements, particularly workers' movements elsewhere. That was a very important source for me. In particular, it's one that has a lot um, of uh, this world of relations between workers, uh, this kind of core group of workers, and intellectuals who came to live and work with them. So there's a, a great deal of documentation, which was wonderful. How much did the workers themselves document their movement as a movement? I mean, uh, there must be a whole paper trail of business dealings and the sales and all of those kinds of things in the in the manufacturer, but how much did they see an interest in or, you know, devote any kind of time or have any kind of time to keep track of the struggle as it was unfolding? They kept, you know, a lot of them have kept documents that were created at the time in which they're, you know, willing to share with, willing to share with me. Mm. Um, so that's, that's certainly something. You know, they, one of the things that sets Leap apart is right from the beginning, they thought of themselves, they couldn't think of themselves as we, the workers against our employers, you know, and that then this, so they would have lost. I mean, they, they had to create support elsewhere because here they, you know, if you're in a firm that, that your owner says, oh, we'd like to basically, you know, uh, downsize you greatly or shut you down, your uh, means of opposing them, if you simply stay within that terrain, are limited. Mm-hmm. So they were very interested in creating support outside, charting that, and they were one of the, leaders of the strike took it upon himself to use, you know, rolls of, in the old days when they had rolls of computer paper, like, uh, you know, and they would each day, he and his crew would go, they'd go through the press and they'd clip out articles. And he has continued to do this till now. I mean, he's continued long afterwards. He's long retired, et cetera, but he's maintained this. And so there isn't that kind of a documentation. And then they would also include in it uh, things that were being said by workers' stories, uh, you know, this long roll. And then it was during the during the movement, um, the movements uh, at Leap, it was displayed in the factory and it would roll in each day. The ideas worker would stop and see what was in Le Monde or what was being said, et cetera. And then they talk about it and that you constantly want to keep people engaged. You know, they have something to say. It's something new. They're going to talk to one another about it. So that was its origin and its rationale as a part of the movement. But it exists today. You can go to the to the archives in uh, Besançon, the departmental archives in Besançon. And, you know, uh, it's, you know, it's, of course, it's it's wonderful for a researcher because someone has done a little bit of the kind of instead of you having to go through Le Monde mm-hmm. every day, you still, you know, there's still a lot of that. But, you know, they were very smart about what they're the kind of the public relations world of a social movement. I just want to follow up on that, this idea of, you know, opening the gates, the idea of the outside world coming into the factory, whether, you know, physically people actually traveling to meet but also the presence of the press and that kind of self-consciousness that you were just talking about. And, you know, the response of a broader public in France, could you say a little bit about that kind of back and forth between this very specific site and what unfolds there and the outside world of, you know, the press, students, the broader population within France beyond its borders? In the early months in uh, 1973, in the summer and early fall of 1973, there was broad support on certainly people who saw themselves in some sense on the left of the left, to use uh, Bourdieu's terminology, to, you know, Mm. they they were very engaged with with LEAP and really, on the whole, were very supportive. Socialist Socialist Party, Communist Party, 
eventually the tr the trade unions they as as the fair drags on month after month without a resolution they would like to see it resolved because there's a way in which they feel this is taking away attention from other issues that we on the left feel are important to negotiate or important to to promote and so there's that uh, element of it initially many who were saw themselves as gaullists you know if de gaulle was no longer um alive but you know people who placed himself and placed themselves in that legacy you know they they saw that, well, this is a national movement they want to you know maintain you know kind of a french factory for the french and not be etc and so there was a support from initially i mean even you find these ministers who amazingly enough are buying these stolen watches or receive be given a stolen watch and not saying oh my god you can't give me a stolen watch i am actually you know the minister of labor but no they they take them as they you know that uh over time over even over the summer of 1973 that turns away and basically you know these people are stealing these etc but there's periods in which uh, particularly large uh support is given and the left never abandons if they just i think get a sense that it would be in the best best perspective of the working class of France were people to get concerned about other issues that we want to bring up at the La Rentrée, at the, you know, in the fall of 1973. And as long as Leap is in the, every day is in the headlines, then this will make this more difficult for us. You know, I forget to think about this, and you certainly talk about it a little bit in the book, that, you know, the legal consequences of all of this, that the role that the police and the state and the military, you know, how they come in, when and how there is crackdown, and then when there is, I guess, well, maybe amnesty is not the right word, but leniency with yeah. respect to the legal consequences of all of this? Uh, both in this first movement in 73, 74, and then from 76 to 81, you know, workers are committing illegal, illegal acts. You know, in 1973, in that summer of 1973, in mid-August, the uh, gendarmes and then the, the CRS come and basically take over the factory, kick the workers out and occupy it, thinking that, okay, this will be the end. You know, they don't have their little okay. factory to go to every day. And But instead, what they do then is they basically uh, are given the right to use a, a local school until the school begins and then other buildings. And they reestablish themselves and they... <laughs> Uh, maintain that maintain the movement. I mean, uh, Charles Piaget, the leader of the movement, is famous for having said, "You know, the factory is not where the walls are; the factory is where the workers are." Uh, they do that, and then in night, when the resolution of the conflict, initial resolution that leads to the creation of this uh, new company, part of it is to give an amnesty to everyone to basically say, "Yeah, the workers have to turn over all the watches that they have that they've hidden that have been hidden throughout the countryside and the." <laughs> Franche-Comté often, and the workers are famous for having said, you know, even now, I mean, they say, you know, you say, well, where were those watches? They say, we can't tell you, you never know, it might come in handy in the future. Pretty amazing. Churches were one place that they were, you know, it's a place that the police are uh, least desirous of going into initially, and also they had support, they were, you know, they had connections, many of these workers were, you know, they were Catholic and they had connections with the parishes. In any case, they get all those watches back, they give them back, and in turn, there's amnesty. Nobody is, you know, prosecuted for anything that they've, you know, any use of right. illicit. And they, and they basically say, well, and this is sort of some of your uh, pay that you should have gotten when you were laid off and didn't get. So we're counting that the fact that you paid yourself. And they paid themselves such that they never lost any salary. They, You know, if you were making mm. you know, 23,000 francs a month, you know, you got paid 3000 francs a month. They didn't, it wasn't a reduced salary. They really, and they, and if they set this, they did the gave people the salaries they were earning at the time that the movement began. So mm -hmm. they, um, and they were able to, you know, it's often seen sometimes as a, as a movement of luxury because, you know, few strikes and few strikes do workers ever get the right. same pay that they were getting when they worked, except they're not working that doing that kind of work anymore. We've talked up until now, Don, about the workers and with a few mentions of leaders and particular figures, uh, Charles Piaget, whose name is a little confusing, <laughs> being one of them. Let's talk a little bit more about who is involved uh, as events unfold at LEAP. Uh, leadership, and in particular, you know, something that I want to be sure that we talk about, the role of women uh, in what happens at the factory. 
Well, I want to start with women and then we can we can sure. uh, talk about other groups. So about half the workforce were women. And as I said, the factory, they made watches, but they were also a, a mechanics workshop, armaments, um, other components that were integrated with the watchmaking so that it's um, but they were also operated separately. And the women were predominantly unskilled workers or workers that were fairly low on the the uh, skill hierarchy. You know, they were working on assembly lines. They were making making the pieces for the watch for the watches. So they were the least well uh, least well paid workers. They lived with um, a world of what we would call sexual harassment, uh, but quite have the term that we would use for it now but you know the the managers who manage the lines and the young women would and they would sort of uh harass them and it was a, a difficult life in that way though the leaders of the movement are very largely male and very largely from the more skilled the more skilled workers the technicians and skilled skilled workers in the movement women come into their own and there is an action committee established this is a facet of many 1968 era movements that you have a unions in the case of leap they're strong unions but precisely for that reason many workers felt were to take this man charles piaget the the uh the leader of the safety uh, uh um, union mm-hmm. said, you know these people they know so much they're so skilled they're so well prepared they do everything that's necessary what can we say what can we do other than just say you know vote yes when we meet in a general assembly you know we can't do any and the action committee they said we are going to get people together and they want to have a role in discussion and talking and without basically initially without the union leaders there not because they were anti-union but because that you know, we all know this phenomena from classrooms and you've got a classroom and you've got the really smart kid in it and all the rest of the kids like, you know, are daunted and don't want to speak. Well, in this case, you know, Charles Piaget was, you know, and, and other leaders like him were unfortunately playing that role. And he was conscious of that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and they worked with this action committee and eventually sometimes would go to meetings, but consciously in a way not to impede discussion. And, and women were particularly important in the, this action committee. And then in the summer of 1973, to build support for their movement, workers would go around the country and speak in Lyon or Bordeaux or Paris, mm. etc., Roubaix. And audiences particularly wanted to hear these women workers. You know, they would, you know, and if there were occasions where you, you know, a, a question would be asked of a woman and the man would start to answer and the crowds would say, no, 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 we want to hear right. her. And so this was also very much something for you know, a group of the women, but ones who became, you know, they became public figures. They be, they develop their skills in these, in these situations. Uh, and then in 1974, when this new company is formed and the movement and that, and they, you know, the the loot is ended in that way. Many of them come together with, and this is an example of, you know, interaction with, you know, some local feminists who were part of the Payasu, part of the the Left Socialist Party you know, get together with them and they basically have these long conversations and they transcribe them and they put out a little book, a booklet of their conversations uh, in 1975, which is translated into a number of languages. I mean, it's a very, you know, the accusation in France in particular was feminists are bourgeois. Hmm. The leap women, I don't think, certainly at the time, didn't refer to themselves as feminists, but feminists listened to them and said, that's what they are. Even the men who led the union, they sort of recognized this, you know, mm-hmm. we need to build as much support as we can. And to be honest, we recognize that these women uh, play this role. And there's one uh, facet of this that I think is particularly interesting, that, as I said, Charles Piaget is enormously well-respected, and Roland Vito, and these these men who lead the, the, the movement are enormously respected. And in conversation with, uh, I think it's kind of prompted by, one of the by one of the women who comes to talk with the leap women, but they really pursue it on their own. And the basically the realization is, how can they appear? How can they give twenty four hours out of twenty four hours be Christ like figures? It's because their wives are staying home and taking care of the household and taking care of the kids, and they have this realization that they, they, these men couldn't play these roles without them. And and it's a real, uh, you know, and these women they come to, you know, we would say a consciousness of why power is the way it is in our society rather than simply being caught with, you know, 
we must do what Charles Piaget says because we so respect him. And they really, they didn't, it didn't make them uh, reject Piaget. It made them understand the source of his power and why women weren't in those positions and what could be done about it, etc. Are the workers at uh, Leap gone? Are they all from the area? Are they local people? Is there a role for like ethnic or racial difference in this working community? I know one of the women, I think one of the women was a team Yeah. Yeah. Yes, so right. I just wonder how much of a role that plays, particularly thinking about this as, you know, un- unfolding in the 1970s. Is that a significant piece of the story? Yeah, it's not. I mean, the, the work, the workforce is very much one drawn from the Franche Comte. Yeah. It's not to say that there are not individual workers who are from, Algeria, Morocco, et cetera, but they're, they're individuals. That's not right. one of the things that made Leap stand out was that while leftists had been very concerned after 1968 and put a lot of their energy and attention into unskilled immigrant workers from the, largely from the former colonies, et cetera, and that's where they really focused their attention, that Leap was a movement that was largely native French. It's a practicing cat. It's one of the more highly right. practicing Catholic areas in, in France. And I think then that's just once again, one of the radical things was, oh, we thought the only radical workers we would be able to find would be, you know, uh, immigrant workers who are the, the lowest of the low and so therefore could become the highest of the high, et cetera, but that the leap mm-hmm. workers were, were different. And so it showed that there were radical potentials through in other, and, you know, in the places of the working force one might have originally looked, but by the late 1960s, leftists weren't looking there. And I talk in the book about, right. you know, one or two incidents involving workers from Algeria, but um, they, there's not, and there's not a, a group of them. They're not, they're not the OS per se. It's, gender is far more a determining sure. factor on who are the, the least skilled, least well-paid workers. So what about the kind of broader question of, I mean, I sort of hate asking this, but it inevitably comes up, of success and failure as things are coming to an end and then beginning again um, through the 1970s, but also in the longer term, you know, how people think about this episode, whether it's political observers, the workers themselves, you know, scholarship uh, theorists later, how do you negotiate that question of success and failure? And yeah, what's the story there in terms of how Leap gets characterized and understood? You know, one of the facets that I think is important about memory is that the memory of Leap, there is what I would call a local memory of Leap and a, and a national memory of Leap. And the national memory of Leap is, as I said, you know, this is a generation of leftists who in 1973, 1974, etc., followed very closely what was going on at Leap, may have been part of these networks that produced a newsletter that was, you know, they, for a while it was a daily newsletter put out literally every day, mm. you know, and they would very pre-internet fashion, get the phone call, carefully copy it down, carefully print it up, carefully call and get, make sure they got the words exactly right. And the next set of calls that they need to people to put this. And that I think you see in, uh, or you see it, uh, you know, in memories of the glorious events of leap, something like that. Mm-hmm. And, if, and many of the leaders, certainly Charles Piaget, though he, you know, remained with the movement through 1981 and after, he is a figure uh, when he speaks now. He still does. He's very um, a very um, moving speaker and um, and very uh, that's he's speaking to that audience. But there, the fact that Leap went on for years, that it was a very difficult period, that very difficult decisions were made, is particularly from government pressure. If you want to get legal uh, recognition of the cooperative, you are going to have to basically say you're not going to you're not going to hire back a good portion of the workers. You're going to put them on what was called List C, which was, well, if we get the cooperative really going, then we would go look for you to rehire you. But, mm-hmm. you know, you're out. These are people who had put five, six, seven years of their lives where they'd leave this. They'd live. This is a community. We It's one for all and all for one here. We're never going to go back to work if we can't all go back to work. So you asked about memory. And I, I just think it's important because, you know, mm-hmm. that. This local, this often happens, I think, with events that there's the, you know, it's oh, what was the national memory of X or something, but there's a local memory which may be very different. And I think that the local memory has these components that are very, very different. 
I have sort of a a basket of comparisons I want to ask you about, Don. So as I'm reading this book, I'm thinking about something that I've read more about, I guess, but that has certain kind of mythological qualities from the French sort of working class historical past that made me think of, that I thought of as I was reading this book, which is the Paris Commune. Just in terms of how people think about this episode, this question of success and failure and the mythological status that it now has. And then forward, you said something about how France is sort of enjoying this leap moment, what we can take away from this history in terms of maybe illuminating more recent questions around working class activism and class struggle, so gilets jaunes, um, other kinds of anti-globalization movements. And then, oh, I skipped the one in the middle, which was drawing connections between Leap and things you bring up in the book, Larzac, other things going on in the 1970s, anti-nuclear activism, those kinds of things. So that's a huge set of questions. But yeah, I'm just wondering about analogies and connections. So maybe starting with the 19th century, then in the 1970s, and now, and then coming up to the present moment and certain kinds of working class agitation that, that is still unfolding in France. 1971 was the 100th anniversary of the Commune. Mm -hmm. It was very much on uh, the minds of leftists in France, uh, the Commune, and it is the most common comparison that they make with Leap. You know, they often make reference to to Marx and his comment that, you know, what's important about the commune was its own working existence, you know, that basically yeah. that it existed and that we can look at its existence and uh, that that in itself is of, of deep importance. And the fact, you know, the thing about the commune is it didn't last very long and whether it be this, uh, the Soviet revolution or uh, leap, you know, they like to, and we lasted, we've already lasted, you know, longer than the, right. than the period of the, of the Paris Commune. But I do think that there is that way in which the left lives with a lots of defeats. And it has to, you know, it's, I mean, I'm sure that if my politics were different, I would say that the poor right lives with lots of histories of defeats. But the left <laughs> does live with lots of histories of defeats. And it, sometimes it can draw from this, okay, and this is why we're defeated in a very sort of sense here. Or that what this shows is the forces that cause our defeat. And certainly there's a strong element of that in my book. I'm very interested in the politics that Leap confronted in the late, 19, uh, late 1970s, early 1980s. Mm -hmm. It's an inspirational story about people faced with situations they'd never been faced with before and making decisions and making decisions in, you know, basically highly democratic ways. Right. I mean, yes, there was a strong union leadership, but there was a lot of the day-to-day -day how things would be handled and done were very much the product of people who didn't, who'd never done these things before and trying to figure out how you would do them and learning and how to work with people who'd come from the outside who may seem like they have the answers, but maybe they don't, or maybe you, you know, you, how to use them as resources rather than as new authorities that you're taking on for yourself. Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, the gilet jaune, it's not a question of trying to pair off interests per se of the gilet jaune and the, and the leap, but something that, that Piaget, um, himself has said, he said a couple of months ago, I mean, he's talking about the gilet jaune. He's talking about gilet jaune, especially in those early mm, the November, December kind mm -hmm. of, you know, in the in meeting and the roundabouts and the, you know, what he admired about them was that a lot of emphasis on discussion, you know, that this is what it's about, that you try to get people out and they talk and they listen to one another and that that's, what, that's an important element. And then secondly, that the gilet jaune, uh, certainly in that period, it's still they resist having leaders. They resist having, you know, authority. They basically say, we are a movement from below, and that's what we're going to stay. You see something that's really important, and you see it manifested in the movement at Leap, and you see it manifested in the Gilets Jaunes, the kind of way in which people who are not taking a kind of a technocratic, well, this is really the best way to handle this issue as we do this, et cetera, that it's a, basically a call for, even on climate issues, et cetera, to say, Let's involve, you know, a, the wide population, you know, in discussions that would make decisions rather than someone determining this is the best way to do it and the best way to discourage people from doing things that they shouldn't do, et cetera. There's a third, third oh, element. Oh, right. The, something I should have asked you about earlier, which is the connections between what happens at Deep and what people see in it 
and other things and other forms of activism unfolding in the 1970s. So something you mentioned um, at a number of points in the book, Lauzac, but then, yeah, other forms of, of activism. You, at one point you talk about Leap being a kind of moment where some of the politics of the late 1960s and early 1970s, in particular, uh, anti-colonial activism or activism against the war in Vietnam kind of returns to the hexagon. So I'm just wondering about that context of the 1970s in terms of activisms and what the connections are between them literally in terms of people visiting different sites and that sort of thing, but other how you see the 1970s as a moment of these proliferating activisms that leave is a part of. You know, um, it's not solely my idea. Many, many scholars before me have talked about this, that, you know, May 1968 led to activists in France who had placed their their sense of where a socialist future could begin and be, be made was in the decolonizing uh, world. Mm-hmm. You know, the workers of Europe, the workers of France were too bourgeoisified. They were this 30 scores years had made them, you know, go into debt buying houses and cars, et cetera, and right. they weren't willing to risk. And that May 1968 showed them differently. And certainly Leap comes very much within that that uh, tradition. Mm-hmm. As far mm-hmm. as other movements, I think that Larzac in particular was was a, a movement that Leap saw itself very closely associated with. That you know they have a Leap has a September 1973 has a big march, but they basically did it because they'd gone that you know a large contingent from Leap had gone to Larzac and they'd seen this is a means of bringing their supporters to, in one case Larzac, and the other case to Besançon to to support uh, Leap, and I think they see themselves as very much you know movements that are connected, and they play an important role. I think. My sense is that one of the ways of thinking about LEAP that's important is LEAP is, and Larzac as well, are ways that people around France felt they were connected, not solely connected like we all subscribe to Polydique Hebdo and we get our newspaper each week, but they felt like they were part of a move, movement that was it was happening and it was happening you know, in a way that they wanted to be part of, that it was not something a top-down, it was a bottom-up movement. And so I think that, yes, that Leap and, Leap and Larzac in particular are closely related. And Leap had had a, a small armaments production, which in the 1950s and 60s had been one of the more profitable elements. You know, and NATO is what turned out to be a good client. But Larzac is, a, you know, is, is anti-militarist in both they're opposing the army, but also it has a strong anti-militarist uh, ideology to it. And many leap share this. And so when the question comes up, well, if we need to find jobs for workers in our co-op and we get an armaments contract, do we take it or not? Mm-hmm. So that these, this was an issue that wouldn't have, I don't think, 10 years earlier, well, you know, five years earlier would have particularly troubled leap workers, but it does very much trouble them when it comes up. It, it actually, the contract never materialized, so they don't have to actually act on it, but they have very uh, heated debates about whether or not basically the employment issue or the armaments issue is more important. Don, there's so many questions I would love to ask, but I'm just going to restrict myself to just one more, which is what are you working on now? Uh, as far as the next project, what I've been uh, working on um, is the army in France in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, you would almost say it's the site of authority within a society and that France has cons- conscription. Every, you know, males were conscripted. They you know, were alternative forms of service, but uh, the majority still go into the, to the army for a period of time. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were efforts to unionize, uh, unionize um, soldiers. And there are uh, soldiers committees, which were basically uh, forms of grievance committees that were established in this time. And I'm interested in the way in which these two worlds, the worlds of army as the site of the model site of authority in a society and the um, anti-authoritarian liberation ethos of 1968 come into confrontation in this in huh. this period. So, so that's what I'm looking at. And I, I got started in part because the first and most developed unionization effort was in Besançon, you know, and the leap uh, leaders of the leap movement got involved in supporting it. And so then I. Really? You, and then once you find out about the reality, you know, of course, the Netherlands, they are unionized. Their soldiers are unionized. You know, the Netherlands is the kind of place where they manage to do all sorts of things that seem illicit elsewhere and do it in a very kind of 
kind of comfortable, comfortable, uh, not uh, away. But um, so, so in any case, that's what I'm. Um, that's what I've been been uh, working on. Well, that sounds really exciting. I I hope you'll keep me posted on that project, Don. I just want to thank you so much for joining me and for writing the book. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. For, I've really enjoyed the conversation. You've been listening to New Books in French Studies, a podcast series on the New Books Network.